0: I th- I think just about everybody here will know what I mean when I say this at least at different times in your life. Uh there are times in, in life and the things that we go through where suffering uh, around us can seem overwhelming. Uh it starts to crowd in in a lot of different ways. Uh even the last few weeks, I think uh you turn on the news and you see uh, nations going to war and, and bombs. And, and here in 2022, you see it happening in real time. You see people posting videos of their houses being blown up and tam- families ripped apart. And, and you see those things in a way we've probably never seen it so vivid and real before in all the wars throughout history. But there it is right in front of you. And it's easy to see that and be overwhelmed with the suffering and, and, and bombings and families being torn apart and, and fighting uh, even this week in the midst of all of that, I'm listening to a podcast as they're talking about it, and there's like, well, and there's a real threat of nuclear war in all this. And you're like, what? <laughs> how do we get to that? Like the sadness of all that, and then they're talking about that as a, a real threat, that that's a real thing right now, that, that we've gotten to this place where we're nations fighting and what's going on. But not only that, you can turn that stuff off or you can kind of try to filter that out a little bit. But then I turn off the podcast and then you go sit uh, with a dear friend that tells you about just the last year and how hard it's been and things that have happened in their life and the things that are coming at them. And you get up and you leave from that. And then you talk to somebody else and they're sharing uh, relational woes and struggles that are going on. And all these things start to pile up and it's easy in the midst of all that to be overwhelmed, to feel that. And I just ask the question, do you feel that? Are there times in your life where you go, yeah, I I felt that way? Or, Or maybe if the statistics are true based on the last couple of years and COVID and isolation and everything else, there's people sitting here today that you feel it right now today, that a lot of that still feels like it's pressing in on you in different ways. And it's difficult at times when you see that and you see the suffering in the world and all around us. And so before we even start and before we look at what Jesus is doing and where he's going today. The first thing I just want to say to you uh, is you're not alone. You're surrounded uh, right here by your family of faith. And we are called to walk together, bearing one another's burdens and caring for each other. That's what we say in our church covenant, that we're promising that we're going to do that together. And so if you feel that today and you feel overwhelmed by the things around you, know that you're not alone. That God has called you into a family of faith and we are here to walk with you in that. But more importantly, even than that, as wonderful as the body is that God has given us to care for one another. Know that you're not alone in the sense of your Savior knows exactly what you're going through in every way. The Bible tells us very clearly, Jesus was tempted in every way that we are yet without sin. The incarnation shows that God cares about the suffering of the world and what's happening and the things that are going on. And in fact, when you start to read through the gospels and you see what Jesus faced, right? The incarnation, God himself, humbling himself to walk amongst us. And he deals with all the same things that we're dealing with. The things that we see today, even wars and oppression and the things that are going on were all very real in Jesus's day. And he was coming face to face with them. Poverty and sickness, death. He's seeing all these things. In fact, the way that Jesus deals with sickness, and we're going to look at that today, there's so much I'd venture to say is even worse than it is today. There were so many things that they didn't have that we have access today and they were seeing these things. Sickness often meant a shortened lifespan, shortened life expectancy, isolation and great pain and suffering and all these things that Jesus is dealing with up close. And I want us to think about that today as we, we look at where he's going and what he's doing and how he's dealing with these things. And so if you've been with us, we've been talking about Jesus's life and we've been looking at it in chronological order. We're kind of going through all the gospels together, but we've kind of arranged them chronologically. So right now we're in the, uh, the gospel of Luke. But in this, what we've been talking about is Jesus's ministry is, is kind of broken up into the really three main years. And we're still in the first year. We often say the year of preparation uh, where he's not as well known, but things are starting to align. We're picking up steam now, and we're getting close to the end of that first year where it really turns to the year of popularity. And you start to see that today, even in all the preaching and teaching, the healings, the miracles he's doing. His name is starting to go out. People are starting to understand who he is, or to some degree who he is. And his fame is spreading all over. And so we've been following that through. Now, Jesus has gone and relocated back up to close to where he grew up, close to Nazareth. He's now in based in the town of Capernaum, which is close to the Sea of Galilee, right there around it. And his ministry is kind of working out from there. And that's where we are right now. And he's going to go out and he's going to see all these things that are going on. But as he does, what we're going to see today in these several snapshots that we're going to look at is that he is facing all sorts of difficulty, all sorts of sadness and sickness and hardship. And so the way I want us to look at just these few passages together, we're going to kind of put them together, focus in on a couple of them. But first, I just want us to consider what he's facing, how he addresses it, and why like this. So what is he facing? How does he address it? And why like this? And so let's just start with the beginning of what he's facing and what he's seeing as he goes out. And it's easy to read through in the Bible and kind of skim through or read a paragraph or two or just what I read to us. It took, what, like three minutes And you read through, and it's easy to skim over that there's a person represented in all these things. In fact, a lot of people represented. And a lot of things going on. And if you start to kind of look back through what we just read from chapter 4 verse 31 and following, you see all sorts of things that Jesus is dealing with. The first in that first section is he's dealing with demonic activity. Demonic possession, spiritual warfare. And it's happening pretty much everywhere he goes. We see it right there at the beginning in verse 31 to 37. But then even right after that, in chapter four, in verse 41, it says, And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. And so he's seeing this over and over and over, the spiritual warfare that's going on. But not only that, he's also seeing all sorts of illness. And we see him healing and stepping in and speaking with authority and rebuking illness Tells us in uh, chapter four there in verse 38 and 39, he goes to Simon's house, to Peter's house and spends time there. And it says he heals, ends up healing Simon's mother-in-law. And so we see one of his healings again as he, he comes face to face with difficulty and sickness. But then right after that in verse 40, it says the sun was setting and all Those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And so what you start to see is tons of people are flocking to Jesus with all sorts of problems. You get to chapter five and then we're gonna look at that in a second. He comes into contact with this guy who's a leper. And then after that, a man who's paralyzed. And so simply put, I want you to think about this for just a second. Let's not skim over what's behind every one of those people. Every single one of those people is dealing with serious life altering struggles, pain and hardship and sickness, some on the brink of death, all sorts of things. And they are flocking to Jesus from all over. And he's seeing every one of this. And so I want you just to start by being reminded of this. Jesus is intimately acquainted with the suffering of the world everywhere he went he was seeing it up close he was looking into people's eyes that are struggling and hurting and in pain and he meets them in the middle of that and so what that's what he's facing but i want us to think about that for just a second zoom out big picture a couple of questions of just why is there so much suffering it's true of jesus's day It's true of our day today. It's still here. There's still suffering in the world. Why is there so much suffering? Not just then, but now. So I want us to think big picture for just a second. God creates the world and creates everything in it. Creates his good creation, says it's good, pronounces it good. A good, perfect, all-wise, all-knowing, loving God creates the world. But yet there's so much suffering. Why is that the case? And part of the reason we start to think about that is that in God's creation, he gives his created beings, us included, made in his image after his likeness, but not just only us. Although man is, is unique in that it tells us we're made in God's image, there's also the heavenly realm of angels that God creates. And in those creations and in those beings, us and the angelic beings, he gives us real choices with real consequences. He makes us in a way that we have the freedom to choose, to see things, to step out and and either trust God or as we see happen and unfold in the Bible, to not trust God. And so in those choices, those real choices He gives us, with that freedom that He gives us comes the possibility of evil. Now God Himself is not evil. He does not will evil. He does not want evil. But in his good creation, by giving us those choices, it makes for the possibility that we can rebel, that evil can come into the world. And so when we think about that, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, talked about the the idea of evil. Evil is not uh, something that exists in and of itself, but it is the privation of good. It is the distortion of good things. It doesn't exist apart from those. It's not the equal and opposite of good, but it's when good is distorted. And so you can think of it in, in a whole lot of different ways, but it's when things are are distorted or misused or exploited, good things become used in that way that they become evil. Uh, I think I may have said this a couple weeks ago. It's one of the easiest ones to kind of get your head around, but like uh, God created sex and it is a good gift that he gives to be enjoyed in marriage in the covenant of marriage, one man and one woman, for life. But as soon as we take that good gift and it gets exploited or used through coercion or force, or it begins to involve children, it is evil. We've taken something that is a good gift that God has given and we have distorted and manipulated it and misused it. And then suddenly it's a mess. That's what evil is. We see it in all sorts of different things all around us. And so in God's creation, creating good gifts and giving us things, but also giving us real choices comes the possibility of evil. And so what happens is that first in the angelic realm, some of the angels decide to take that choice and rebel against God. The Bible tells us about a third of the angelic beings are thrown down because of their rebellion against God. A little later, as God creates man, makes us in his image, and he gives us real choices with real consequences, we blow it. Our first ancestors decide that we can do this in this creation that God has created. We can operate without him. And as soon as we do, sin enters into the world. And we take that choice and the possibility of evil, and we make it real. And we make it actual, and we see it spread and get into everything and so it's all around us. We see suffering and struggle and pain and hardship, the privation of good, the distortion of God's good creation. But there's a question that comes. I think in that, if you're if you're thinking that through, and we're called to be thinking in our faith, love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We're in, we're told to to think deeply, and it's good to wrestle with these things and ask the questions. So what one of those questions might be? why does God make that a possibility at all? Why give us choices that can even have the possibility of the outcome of evil that leads to suffering and struggle and pain and all that's there? I think one of the answers to that when we really start to think about it is God has made us for relationship, ultimately with him, but also with one another. And he's given us these choices and have true relationships with with love and and all that goes with it, there has to be a choice in that. If he removes all choice and he removes all things, then all of a sudden we're not free to have those interactions and those choices. And so God in his infinite wisdom allows us to have those choices. Maybe you've heard of the the book years ago. It was actually made into a terrible movie or a couple of terrible movies. As often happens with books. Uh, But there's a book called The Stepford Wives. Have you ever heard of that? It was like some guys in Connecticut. I think that's that's the name of the book is after the town's name is Stepford. And, And in this town, what happens is some guys get together and realize that they can control their wives by like putting a chip in their brain or something. And basically what it does is it makes them say yes to everything. They can't cross the will of their husband at all. And so everything they say, they say, yes, dear, right away. They do that and they think this will make everything great. But the point of the book is that it doesn't make everything great. It's actually pretty awful. And it's awful because there's no longer a real relationship. Having a relationship with someone has to do with with the the give and take and understanding and, and, and interacting together and accepting them and them you and the way that works. And when you remove that, the possibility of any sort of choice, love can't really exist in that. And so part of God's good creation is he creates us to have real choices with real consequences that we can have real relationships. And so then in, in some ways that answers the question. God allows for the possibility. He gives us real choices with real consequences. And so we rebel against him. And as soon as we do, we have distorted his good creation and evil is now entered in and it begins to spread into all things. And you can trace so much of the evil in the world back to our distortion of the good things God has made. And we see it all around us in a whole lot of different ways. And so much of that is due to our own rebellion, our own sinful uh, actions and reactions and the way that we operate in the world. And we see that in so many places. But there is another objection there, if you're you're really thinking that through, if you've wrestled with these things, is, well, what about sickness? What about natural disasters, right? We're about to see Jesus interact with multiple people that are sick, right? One guy with leprosy, one guy's paralyzed. Some of those things, like being paralyzed, could have been from an accident, that does happen from our choices and the way that we operate. But sometimes we know people that get sick and we don't have a thing that we can put our finger on of saying, we made that happen. So why like that? Why is there so much struggle in the world with sickness and natural disasters and all the things that go with it? And so much of that is the privation of good. There's things built into creation that give the possibility of negative consequences. But the Bible also tells us that when man sinned and sin entered the world, that God subjected the creation to futility. Romans chapter eight, Paul's writing about the the struggles of sin in the world. And he says, the creation is groaning under the weight of sin. And then he says this in chapter eight, verses 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And so simply put, there is a futility that is inherent and in everything, and God has subjected the creation to this futility because of the sinfulness of man. But if you listen carefully to what it says, it says it was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that God allows there to be a futility that's built into everything now in creation, but he does so in hope. He does so in a confident assurance in what is to come and the way he is going to redeem and bring those things together. Because the very next thing it says is that in hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain the glory of the children of God. And so the futility that is built into everything is an alarm that is telling us that there is something horribly wrong with creation right now. Namely, our sin. That we have rebelled against a holy, righteous, perfect God. And now it's in everything. And that futility is kind of uh, awakening us to that. There's a quote in your bulletin this morning from John Piper. And he talks about this very idea. And it's hard for us to really understand the fullness of that idea. Subjecting the creation to futility and hope if we do not see sin for what it is. That it is the horror against God. That sin is directly against God and who he is and the awfulness of that. And so listen to what Piper says. He says, the biblical reality that sin against an infinitely wise and just and good God is a moral outrage greater than the physical outrage of centuries of global suffering. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, you can take all the suffering that the world has gone through since the beginning of time until now, and it is nothing compared to the horror of our sin before a holy God. And that's hard for us to hear apart from seeing the holiness of God, seeing God for who he truly is. Because we're really good at dismissing sin and acting like it's not a real big deal. It's not that bad. And that's because we don't understand fully the holiness of God. And so God allows that futility to be built into creation as man sins. And it's there to alert us that there's something drastically wrong. It's uh, smelling salts to awaken us to the reality of what's going on. The sin in the world. Right, you know what smelling salts are? You ever see it like in a boxing match? The guy gets knocked out and they go out and they break that thing and they hold it under his nose and he he comes awake, right? When we see the horrors of the world, that futility that's built in, it's meant to awaken us that there's something wrong. It's to point us that sin before a holy God is this awful. It's to show us of the reality of how things are before a holy God righteous God. There's another quote in your bulletin from C.S. Lewis. He used to jokingly say I could have a quote from C.S. Lewis every single week because he says so many things so well. But he says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And so we see the suffering and the pain of the world And we wrestle with these things and we feel the weight of it. And it's there to awaken us that there's something wrong. And so Jesus comes and he steps into the middle of it. And he's met with a mountain of suffering at every turn and everywhere he goes. And so what does he do as he steps in? He begins to speak with authority. He begins to rebuke suffering at his word. And right, he walks in with Peter's mother-in-law and it says she's sick and he stands over her and he speaks the word and suddenly she gets up. He stood over her and rebuked the fever. <laughs> Can you imagine? He just says and it's gone. The God of the universe steps in and begins to rebuke the fever. He starts to walk into these places and they bring people after people, person after person that's in desperate need and he brings healing and he does this in all these different ways but I want us to think about the balance that's here and what he does. And I think we could summarize it like this. He walks and he shows what it looks like, the rule and reign of God, the kingdom of God that is coming when all things will put un- be under subjection to God and perfection. And he's showing that in his healing ministry and the way he's going, but he's also preaching and teaching as he goes. And so we could summarize it that Jesus's ministry is word and deed. It's both together in perfect balance in everywhere he goes. And so if you would look with me at the passage here about the leper, chapter five, verse 12. Well, I was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy and he saw Jesus and he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. And so it's a pretty famous story. And with a leper that comes up, we see this a few times in the gospels. Leprosy is something that's not real common today, although it still exists. I don't know how much you know about leprosy, but at that time, if you got leprosy, it was a communicable disease and it's a skin disease. And what it was is boils, uh, pain that comes from that, ulcers, blisters, often resulting in nerve damage, like horrible pain over time. Is it de- it's a de- degenerative disease that continues to kind of eat away at you. And if you got leprosy, as if the pain and the boils and all the stuff that goes with it wasn't bad enough, you would have to live in isolation. Because it was so uh, easily passed, easily spread, you couldn't be around anyone and you couldn't touch anyone. Can you imagine the sadness and the hardship of having this disease, but then on top of that, having no human touch, being isolated, right? I think maybe you know a little bit about that the last couple years and how hard that is. And so here this guy comes in and he finds Jesus and he falls down on his face before him And he says, if you're willing, please, you can make me clean. He professes his faith that Jesus can do this. And Jesus says that he will. But I love in verse 13 that it says, Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him saying, I will be clean. Realize that this person would not have been touched by anyone in a long time. And if you touch him, you're now unclean. And you too kind of have to go into the protocols to stay away from everyone right? (laughs) sounds a lot like COVID, does it not? (laughs) You've been (laughs) exposed and so on, right? But Jesus steps in and instead he takes him and he touches him. And instead of Jesus becoming unclean, he becomes clean and he heals him in fullness. He brings him and he gives dignity to the person who's suffering and struggling. And he steps in and he touches him and he's showing what Paul talks about in Romans chapter eight that this creation has been subjected to futility, but it's been subjected in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And in a moment, this man is healed because he's come into contact with Jesus. And he professes his faith. I know you can do this. And Jesus says, be healed. And he does, and he heals him in that moment. But there's a strange thing that keeps happening as Jesus heals people. He he says, I will and be clean. It says immediately the leprosy left him and he charged him to tell no one. Does this a lot. He heals people and he does things and then he goes, and don't say anything. Like what? Here he is proclaiming the kingdom of God and look at what's happening and now he's here, but then he keeps telling people, don't tell anyone. Why is that the case? I think there's a couple things. One we've been talking about and been walking through this series is there's a great misunderstanding about who the Messiah is. They're wanting to make him be the great leader that's going to overthrow governments and we're going to follow him and he's going to do away with the Romans. And every time they see him do something great, it's like, yes, let's go. Let's go overthrow the government. Let's go do these things. Let's do it right now. And Jesus keeps going, be quiet. Settle down. <laughs> don't, don't tell anybody that. But but there's a second thing that's going on and, and they go together. But I think there's a second thing that's going on is he doesn't want these miracles spreading out of the proper context of what he's come to do. And he says this over and over. If you look at the end of chapter four, verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he keeps telling them, no, 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 I can't just stay here and just keep healing. I have to go and proclaim the good news of what I've come to do. And he even says, this is my purpose. I must preach the kingdom of God to the other towns, for I was sent for this purpose. And he keeps saying this and he keeps doing this and he keeps coming back to this. He wants to make sure the people do not miss the eternal significance of what he's come for. That it's just put in, uh, they're thinking too small, basically. And Jesus is gonna continue to kind of tamp that down. Word and deed. And in fact, he kind of shows us that there's a part of what he's saying and proclaiming that takes priority even over the healing. The healing is there to point to the words that he's saying and what he's come to do. And so I want us to think about why like that. Why is that the case? Why does he heal in that way and talk in that way and continue to do that? And so look at the last section here as he heals this paralytic, very famous passage. This is one of those days he was teaching and the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They come from every village of Galilee and Judea and for Jerusalem, right? So from like 70 miles around, they're flocking to him. Right, His his popularity is now starting to ramp up. People are hearing who he is. And behold, some men were bringing a man on a bed who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. So they cut a hole in the roof. Right? The roof was a little easier to get through than ours today, but still it's a pretty big deal. And they lower him down in front of Jesus imagine that picture, the desperation of a paralyzed man that can't walk. And I believe that you can heal me. I've got to get to this guy. And he lowers him down in front of Jesus. And in verse 20, he saw their faith and he said, man, your sins are forgiven. I want you to just think about that guy for a second laying on his cot and they lower him down. And he says, your sins are forgiven. And, (laughs) right, like he's still laying there. He still can't move, but Jesus starts there. Your sins are forgiven. He starts at his deepest need. He starts at the most important thing. And those around listening says in verse 21 in the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies, who can forgive sins, but God alone. And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk, but that you may know the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the man was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose before them and he picked up what he was lying on and he went home glorifying God and amazement seized them all. And I want you to think about the the interplay there between word and deed and what Jesus has come to do and what he's saying and why like this. He's showing us that the deepest need that we have, right? Why is there paralyzed people? Why Why is there sickness in the world? Why is there leprosy? Why are people struggling? Why is there relational woes? Every single one of those things comes back to the heart of sin against a holy God. And Jesus steps in and says, I'm not going to just heal you of these infirmities. I'm going to go to the very deepest of your needs and fix that. I have come to, to defeat sin and death at the very core, at the very bottom, not just the things that are the outworking of sin. And so he goes to the deepest need and he meets his man in the midst of it. And he says, he alone forgives and he forgives his sins. And I think that, by the way, we give the Pharisees a hard time. But they're right to say, who is this that forgives sins? Right? We, I say this all the time. Sin is against God. It's rebelling against God in the world he created. All sin is against God. So who can forgive sin? God alone can forgive sin. And so when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Think about what an outlandish thing that is. And then he says, well, who are you? And he says, I'm the son of man. It's Jesus' self-applied term that is pointing to messianic prophecies. He's pointing to himself. I'm the son of man. And so you can see and understand who I am. Get up and walk. And what he does in these miracles always is he's using them to point to the word of what he's come to do, the fullness of what he's come to do. His ministry is always word and deed. It's always in balance. But it's always pointing to what he's come to do in his finished work. And so the miracles are there to validate the words that he's saying, to point to the words he's saying, to show us the fullness of what he's come to do. And so I want us just to think about why that is so very important. Imagine for a moment that he heals this man. He has no conversation with any of that. He's healing people, but he never speaks the truth. He never tells them what the kingdom of God is about or why he's come or what he's doing. And he just heals people. What happens? Guy gets up and takes his bed and he goes home and he lives his life. And then what happens? He grows old and he dies. And apart from a saving faith in the savior of the world and what he has come to do, he dies in his sin and he goes to hell for eternity. And so if we divorce the word of God and what he's come to do and the finished work of Jesus, and we just seek to do good deeds apart from proclaiming the good news of who God is and what he's come to do, it's futility. And so what you see is Jesus holding those things in perfect balance always. Yes, he has a healing ministry because it is showing what the kingdom of God is like. Yes, God cares about your suffering and your healing and he is going to bring all those things to their good end. But the only way that that's gonna happen is by him coming and laying down his life and dealing with sin itself and eradicating it and bringing it to nothing. And so he knows that. And in everything he does, that's what he's doing. And he continues to do so in all things. And so I want us just to think about the balance that Jesus strikes in that, his word and deed, right? Why he's withdrawing when they're coming to him to pray. Why he's withdrawing and saying, I have to go to the next town and preach the good news of the gospel. Because there's a primacy in understanding why he's come and what he's come to do. And it's going to ultimately bring the end to all those things. And so what does that mean for us? As we seek to love God in all things, We seek to follow him in every way. We too should have ministries of word and deed. We are called to do good deeds. We are called to show what the kingdom of God is like. We say all the time, we want to glorify God. What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. What does it mean to glorify God? To show what he's like. To reflect back who he is. We are absolutely called to do that. We're called to do good deeds. We are called to seek justice. We're called to care for the oppressed. We're called to to seek to step into those difficult places and help alleviate suffering. But if we do that without the good news of the gospel, we are wasting our time. Because what is ultimately going to eradicate all those things in fullness is the finished work of Jesus. And if we're not doing both, we're not following Jesus the way he did ministry. And so sometimes people say, maybe you've heard of this before, they, I think they wrongly uh, attribute it to a whole bunch of different people at different times. But there's this saying, preach the gospel wherever you go and use words when necessary. That is a lie. You can't preach the gospel without words. They're always necessary. Now the, the heart behind it is, show people what God is like and the way that you operate, that they see something different. And to the yes, to that I said, yes, amen, do that. But as you do it, proclaim the name of Jesus. It's not either or. It's both and. We're called to love people in the way that God has loved us, but we're also called to proclaim the good news of what he's done. And do it always in all things together. Years ago, I got to go on a a trip to Honduras. Actually, Al went with me. (laughs) Al and I and and, uh, our good friend Dirk, we went to Honduras and we built uh, some wells in Honduras. And, And we went into this village and spent all week working with these people. And it's muddy and hard and digging and all this stuff. And you get to know those people. But we went with an organization called Living Water. It's called living water because of what we talked about a couple of weeks ago in John chapter four, the woman at the well, and Jesus says, If you knew who was here, you would ask him for water and he would give you living water. And living water is built around the idea that we go into those places and we help meet the most basic needs of people that don't have running water. And then as we do, we stand and tell them, But the true living water that will quench the deepest thirst of your life is Jesus. And we got to spend time with those people and then look them in the face and say, this is great, but this is nothing compared to the glory that's to come in knowing Jesus. Word and deed perfectly together. We're called to always do that, to always be seeking to love people and meet them in their needs, but at the same time proclaim Jesus. Because the true deepest need of every single person you will ever meet is to be reconciled to their creator. The answer to all of our deepest problems ultimately are found in Jesus and what he's done. And we get the opportunity to do that just as Jesus was doing it. Yes, we want to alleviate suffering. Yes, we want to meet people in the midst of their struggle, but we want to remind them that fully it will be dealt with with Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. And so I just want to encourage you, if you're suffering, if you're going through difficult things right now, that God knows your suffering and he loves you and that he came to put those things to an end. And whether it's in this life that those prayers are answered or it's in glory when Jesus returns, he is going to set all things right and it's all going to be through what Jesus does and nothing else. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel that you meet us in our suffering that you've come to us to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Help us to see that. But we do pray that in our lives that they would reflect what you've done for us and that we would look to you as our pattern of how we make disciples and how we love people. That yes, we want to alleviate suffering. Yes, we want to do good things that bring glory to you. But we always want to do so pointing to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Give us many opportunities Open our eyes to see the places where there's needs and where we can step in and help and proclaim the good news of Jesus in all things. It's in his name that we pray, amen.